The interesting different thing is that now we have enough regular climate impacts to show that like they're actually more disruptive in general to people's lives and will be going forward than just what we typically think about in like energy price volatility. Hello and welcome to Energy 360, the podcast from the Energy Security and Climate Change Program at CSIS. I'm your host, Lisa Hyland. This week, we take a look back at energy and climate developments in 2021. It was a big year. In the US, the Biden administration came in with a strong agenda and internationally, all eyes were on the November UN climate meetings in Glasgow. Along the way, we also saw some major supply chain disruptions and rising energy prices. Where was the real progress made both in the US and internationally? To discuss, my colleague Nico Safo sat down with Liam Denning and Sarah Ladislaw in mid-December. Liam is a Bloomberg opinion columnist who covers energy, and Sarah is a managing director at RMI, where she heads the U.S. program. Two people we turn to regularly for their insights and opinions. In addition to covering the last year, they also give us a sneak peek at some things to watch in 2022. Here's Nikos to host the discussion. Well, thank you, Sarah and Liam, for being here with us. Always great to have you back. Welcome. 2021 was a busy year. So much, so much has happened, so much to reflect upon. And also, of course, love to have some time to talk about the future in 2022 and what's coming. But let's start with just looking back. And there's so much to unpack. I want to maybe start international and then go domestic. And on the international front, Sarah, maybe start with you. Get your thoughts on COP26 and the aftermath. But more broadly, you know, we, we've seen one year of climate diplomacy in action from the Biden administration that culminated at COP, but it wasn't just about COP. You know, how do you how do you grade the international diplomacy of this administration? What did they accomplish? Uh, what is your assessment of, of the record so far? Yeah, thanks. And thanks uh, for having me back on the on the podcast. It has been an interesting year and there's just so much to digest in all of it. I'll try to be concise as possible. Listen, I think that the Biden administration, certainly with partnership from the European Union and others, trying to accelerate what didn't happen over the last several years in a, in a period of, you know, 12 months, right? So they were basically trying to take what was a notional idea of having 2050 net zero targets that if you think back to, you know, 2020 was certainly something we were talking about and, and analyzing. And there were some leading countries that were taking those positions and, and really trying to say, okay, not only is a net zero 2050 vision your starting point, but it is quickly insufficient and you need to move on to like having your emissions by 2030, right? And so that discussion, if you look at the cadence of the year took place in about six to eight months. And then it took another turn, which was, oh, by the way, we just really need to make sure that we fess up to the fact that we didn't, you know, raise enough public money to, you know, to pay for what developed countries pledged, you know, in international climate finance for developing countries. And we need to mobilize like just staggering amounts of private capital and, you know, check the box, right? At least nominally, they have this idea that, you know, $160 trillion of assets are, are sort of committed to being climate aligned. And now they get to turn the page to saying, okay, what do we do to sort of mobilize that capital, right? Like, how are we going to actually get that out the door? 
this was something they they did in the span of 12 months, which I think is a pretty remarkable uh, achievement for setting the tone. The big thing that has to happen now is they have to turn all of that sort of activity and rhetoric and framing into concrete activities. I will say the last thing that I thought was pretty remarkable about COP itself was they they really needed to do like two core things. One is they needed to show that the Paris Agreement was still intact and valid. And part of doing that was showing that China was still on board, right? And that even though, you know, the relationship between the United States and China has soured quite a bit, that that was still like fundamentally intact and everybody was still involved. And so they went into COP with you know, the Chinese not being there at a very high level and came out with like a, an agreement to do things together that essentially, you know, was meant to be like a de facto sign that, you know, China is still in this. There's still good work to be done despite, you know, sort of the high level rancor. And I think that was successful. If they had, if the wheels had fallen off the bus, you know, in the proper negotiations in any way, shape or form, I think that would have been a failure and that didn't happen. And therefore I think it's probably a success. And the second piece is, you know, I was at COP, the thing felt like a private, like a private sector conference, right? Like people were doing business at the COP based on what their you know, commercial commitments were and the things that they wanted to achieve in terms of their climate commitments. I think it shows that climate is is now big business. And the the degree to which people were structuring public-private partnerships for the next decade, you know, to, to achieve those ends showed to me that there was a, at least some realism about what it's really going to take to accelerate uh, emissions reduction. No, thank you for that. And I think the the parallel cop you know the sort of official plus business and private public partnerships was definitely one of the things that struck me as well as as being very very pronounced liam let me turn to you because you know we knew cop was coming and we were sort of gearing up for cop for most of the year let's talk about something that we didn't necessarily see coming or if we saw it coming we didn't see it coming in that specific way which is what's happening in energy markets we have seen obviously Gas prices uh, in Europe and in Asia, especially in the spot market, going going crazy. We saw oil markets being particularly jittery and SPR sort of release, if you can call the word release, if that word is accurate. A lot of uh, back and forth about how much the transition or underinvestment or Biden's climate policy is to blame for what is happening in energy markets. What is your read or what's happening and how much does that experience sort of shape how we should think about going into 2022? I mean, I think what's happening is the same, you know, phenomenon we've seen more broadly. You know, the, the economy is coming back from a once-in-a-generation shock. That's not going to happen smoothly. Any number of stories about supply chain kinks and various disruptions going on. So I think there's a bit of that. It's a little weird, I guess, that we didn't, see it coming. I think if we go back to the start of the year, I can remember writing about gasoline prices maybe being a problem by the time we get round to the midterms, you know, and that's obviously happened a lot more quickly. And I think, you know, the most obvious impact is political, right? Anytime gasoline goes above three bucks a gallon, the media is saturated with stories about pump prices. But it really boils down to that word that I think is 
has probably been abused the most this year, which is which is transitory, right? It all depends on how transitory this stuff is. Now, I think we can all agree the inflation in general has proven to be more than transitory. The jury's still a little out on what's going to happen with gasoline prices. They do seem to have peaked for now. And, you know, if you put your, your rational cap on, even when gasoline was averaging, you know, 350, 360 a gallon, that isn't the kind of missile attack on the US economy that it used to be, right? We're still only talking about on average, and I caveat this by saying it's all averages, and of course, some people are being hurt by this more than others. But you know, it's two percent of disposable income. If you compare it to you know real prices, it's nowhere near where gasoline has got to in the past. It, wages have gone up, and and you have to you can get seven and a half gallons for an hour's worth of labor or something like that compared to what it was five years ago. But the big question is, you know, as we head into 2022, how strongly does this stuff persist? And we just really don't know. I mean, the most obvious factor is the weather. You know, Europe is in some ways going to quite literally live or die, depending on how severe this winter is, is going to be, given where gas prices are already. And although the outcomes could be complex, numerous, you've got to think a hard winter is not going to help Biden's climate agenda in general, because it just leaves that door open to attack, no matter how disingenuous it might be. You know, before coming on this podcast, I was trying to think back, like, what was what was the big story of energy this year? And there's so many to choose, but, you know, one of them is what happened in Texas at the start of the year. Right. And how many nanoseconds did it take before we started seeing stories about wind turbines taking down the great state of Texas? So as we head into the midterms, I think, you know, the, the key thing Biden really needs to do is to bed down as much support for climate policies as he can, because what this is really about is setting in train long term trends in a very short political window. And, you know, he has some things on his side. He has the fact that gasoline, while it's three bucks and psychologically harmful, isn't actually that big of a deal economically. Um, he has the fact that capital markets still broadly on the side of clean tech, but he's got to get that act passed in some form in the Senate if he's to head into the midterms with anything to really boast about on this agenda in a meaningful way. Yeah, let me build on that, Liam, and let me turn to you, Sarah, just thinking about the Biden agenda. I mean, we've, we've been talking about various elements of it, but I wanted to start maybe with uh, the top line element, which is, you know, the president announcing a very robust emissions target for 2030. And before we talk about all the other things that he's trying to accomplish in energy and climate, you know, he announced that target in April. Now it's December. Have things happened in the interim? Obviously, the bipartisan infrastructure framework has been agreed upon. The Build Back Better has gone through one chamber. Other actions. You know, are are you feeling any more confident about the ability of this country to get to that number today than you did earlier in the year? Why? Why not? Yeah, it's a good question, and I broadly agree with everything Liam talked about in the political calculus of, you know, how to think about energy market fluctuations that I will, I guess I'll push back a little bit. I do find high gasoline prices and high natural gas prices to 
be not terribly surprising. I do think Liam's right that they came sooner than we thought, but like this always happens, right? I mean, like <laughs> this is the issue with oil and gas markets, right? Is that we go through these cycles. Like, so it is in some ways the least surprising phenomenon in our energy system period. The, the interesting different thing is that now we have enough regular climate impacts to show that like they're actually more disruptive in general to people's lives and will be going forward than just what we typically think about in like energy price volatility. So I do think we've kind of crossed this Rubicon where like people are like, wait a minute, there's tons of risk in our energy system. And the whole thing is way less resilient to a whole bunch of different types of volatility. And so I feel like, you know, we're in a place where we can kind of understand that now. That being said, I think that the Biden administration has made a huge amount of progress in a year if you're realistic about the type of progress that can be made in a year. And this is something that we're all just going to have to like learn how to digest, which is like, what does it look like to make climate progress in a quarter by quarter basis? Because that's the game, right? Like we have to stop thinking about like, you know, 2030 or 2050, we have to think about year over year what was possible. And if you just look at the executive orders, like this past week on, you know, EV charging infrastructure and government procurement and net zero targets for federal infrastructure, if you look at the NDAA, you know, the National Defense Authorization Act, and like the climate goals entailed in that, like they are moving extremely quickly to put all of the purchasing power of the federal government into the, the category of being net zero. And so I think that that is really important not to discount because when you cannot send regulatory or policy signals, the type of which need to go through a legislative branch like a carbon price or like regulation, which they haven't started as much on the regulatory agenda. Like those are big signals for the government to send. It is it, it is important stuff for them to do for the companies and people who are wondering, you know, I'm a company or I'm an investor and I've agreed to be climate aligned, right? I've agreed to move my portfolio into something that is um, recognized by the government as being, you know, positive for my emissions trajectory. Well, if it's government procurement oriented and they're one of your major clients, that moves the needle, right, on, on some of the decisions that you're making. So I think that those are really important, you know, things to pay attention to. The second is, you know, we tend to go, oh, we passed the bipartisan infrastructure, you know, bill, and that's great, but that's not the bigger one. So maybe it's not that big of a deal. It's $60 billion, Right. ARRA, the stimulus in 2009 was, you know, depending on how you measured it, between 80 and 90. It's a huge amount of money for which the federal government is going to have to hire close to a thousand people to be able to execute. Right. So we now have just an enormous amount of money where it really, really matters. And the thing that I'm surprised at is I think we knew we were going to get some EV charging infrastructure money or some transmission line infrastructure money building retrofit money, like those types of things. We got a lot of money on heavy industry, right? Lots of hydrogen money, lots of CCUS money, potentially nuclear money. Like there's a lot of things that are that are down payments on the hard to abate sectors that are in what we've already you know, been able to achieve. And so I think that if you look at year number one as being let's set the table and set the strongest federal signal that we can, 
to states and cities and companies that are thinking about investing in the United States, it's a pretty strong signal. If we get $600 billion of you know, climate-oriented spending out of the reconciliation package, it is without a doubt the single most important thing that's ever happened to climate action in the United States and will probably ripple you know, throughout the world. So it's a huge amount of money. It's a huge investment. I think if, if we finish the job and pass the reconciliation package, um, then I think it, it's going to be pretty important in the ways that it kickstarts uh, the, the sort of action towards meeting those targets. Yeah, Leah, let me turn to you uh, also to get some of your thoughts on decarbonization, but maybe also to seed the, the next topic that I wanted to talk about, which was, you know, pairing that desire to decarbonize with an ambition by the administration to call it reshore, build up supply chains, but just more generally reposition the U.S. in this new energy market to do more stuff here and using some of the levers that are talked about of federal procurement and others to accelerate that. You know, if you can sort of pair those two things together and, and your assessment of the progress, both on bending the emissions curve, but also uh, speaking to that desire to rearrange and reshape these markets that have developed in a way that the United States has been uh, sort of lagging its peers in you know, manufacturing, whether it's solar or batteries or, or other, other areas. I think broadly speaking, it's a, it's a double-edged sword, right? I mean, on, on the one hand, selling green policy required selling it as a jobs policy, as a reinvention policy as a way of revitalizing, you know, American cities and speaking to the unions and sort of reasserting American leadership in all sorts of ways, not just in its sort of traditional role as a, as a, a developer of technology, but, you know, increasingly throughout the year, we've seen it also kind of tilted towards this geostrategic competition with, with China, which obviously leads in a lot of these areas just in terms of raw capacity. So it's, it's unavoidable in that sense. Does it come with costs? Probably to some degree, although uh, to be honest, I'm not a, a trade economist, so I'm not going to offer any kind of definitive answer on that. You know, looking back at 2021, we've already seen the consequences of disrupted supply chains and what that means for inflation in general. Are we going to see some of that creep into a world where governments which are you know committing to spend a lot of money on developing these industries wanting to develop them at home potentially bringing in you know mechanisms like carbon border tariffs is that going to lead to some inflation in in some of these technologies i would have to guess yes particularly if we do get the 600 billion dollar package passed that's a lot of money to funnel through a fairly narrow funnel as, as it stands today. Now, having said all that, that's obviously a risk for an industry which is, you know, sells itself and its ability to keep, you know, marching down the experience curve and, and keep getting its costs down. However, I, I would go back to, the, to the, the first point, which is how else do you do it? How else do you get public support for this? How else do you get people jazzed about, you know, these products and selling them as something other than some you know, frankly, for a lot of people, a fairly esoteric abstract, I don't really see how else you do it. And maybe you just have to swallow that risk along with it. 
Yeah, Sarah, let me turn to you, get your thoughts on that supply chain question. But I also wanted to seed, you know, the part of that supply chain question, as, as, as Liam said, was a question of revitalization, right, and rejuvenation. This administration came in with, with very ambitious plans to, you know, try to put money in different parts of the country, yet Justice 40 sort of goal. How would you talk about supply chains and manufacturing and reshoring more broadly, but how would you also grade those efforts in the context of trying to redistribute the benefits or trying to make sure that the benefits accrue to people and communities that may have been not part of receiving those benefits in the past or may have been sort of more actively disadvantaged by the kind of developments that happened around them. So how would you grade the administration so far on both of those fronts? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. I, I go back and forth. I completely agree with Liam in the sense that this whole vision and the, the idea of decarbonizing this quickly is predicated on making people feel the positive impacts. And there's a narrative about that. But I think if you went around to various communities in the United States and asked, you know, what do you think is the biggest potential job creator in your community? Or what do you think economic revitalization comes from? They might talk about, you know, clean energy and clean technologies, but probably not. You know, it's probably not the the top thing that they're thinking about as the source of that revitalization or a source of future competitiveness. And so I think that there's a lot of work to be done here. I give high marks for at least shooting at the problem you're trying to hit, right? So, So we have identified an issue or a set of issues, both in terms of worker transition and then also environmental justice communities. We've tried hard to identify those communities. So I think if if you look at the way in which the Department of Energy or the interagency task force that is focused on the environmental justice 40 uh, working group, they have tried very hard to think about not only who are we talking about when we're talking about these communities and what do we actually know about which investments are preferred, which investments are welcome, and which ones have the most potential impact. I think what is taking longer is that you can solve those issues, and and I know you guys do a lot of work on this in in the Just Transitions Initiative, you do a lot of work on this in abstract, but when you do it in a community, it takes time, right? You really do have to like sort of work with the community to figure out how you're going to deal with the myriad issues that go into a climate transition in that community. And that's hard work and that's time consuming work. So I think it's been it's been very positive in that there's a lot of framing around, you know, how one would try to target particular communities and do place-based economic development that is also good for the climate. But then, um, and then also to make sure that there are resources put there. But I just think it's, it is time consuming work that to be honest with you, is going to need to continue to be a focus area and an area of ongoing learning. I think it's more challenging in some parts of the country than others. But as Liam was saying, it could get worse if all of the sudden things are more expensive or they're taking longer and they don't look like genuine opportunities, right? And this is a potential problem if we're shoving lots of money through small funnels, as Liam said, that's a real risk. Like that could legitimately happen. We are very bad at building infrastructure in the United States. We're not great at deploying capital for some of these resources sometimes. And if we promise things to communities and under deliver, it turns on a dime. 
So I, I'm really worried about the, uh, the potential for under delivery there, but I think all of the efforts are put in the right place so far. Thank you. Thank you for that. So let me look a little bit sort of ahead in the new year in 2022 and maybe start with you, Leah, uh, on a couple of things. One, I mean, on the politics, it seems that maybe I'm speaking to the wrong people, but it seems that we're almost kind of like the mood of the city is that the Democrats are sort of going to lose the House, the Senate, either or both. And there's a sense that the window to sort of legislate is is very narrow. So I wanted your thoughts on, you know, whether that is also your sense and what that means, if it is a sense, but but also would love for you to comment a little bit on the capital markets as well. I mean, the sort of what investors are willing to support or not support has been a subject of intense uh, dispute and disagreement over the last sort of few uh, months, especially as energy prices have gone up. Uh, and so what are you seeing both on the political front, but also from capital markets in 2022 that would be important signposts for us to think about and to keep in mind as we go into the new year? Sure. So on the politics, I mean, obviously, I, I don't live in D.C. I live out in the provinces, so um, I'm probably not as well informed as you. You know, I, I guess the, the narrative you highlighted is um, correct. You know, the Democrats probably will lose the House at least. And I think it's not unfair to say that that probably does bring progress, at least on the legislative front, to a a screeching halt. I mean, we have to consider the entire context of 2021, which also, you know, began with uh, an assault on the capital. We live in weird political times where, you know, it, it's not that just one party is opposed, is broadly opposed to far-reaching climate legislation. I mean, that, that particular party doesn't seem that interested in legislation full stop. So I think if, if Democrats lose the House, that's kind of the end of things for at least a couple of years in terms of far reaching policy. And I think that brings me to the investment angle, which is, you know, the great success of the past year has been the administration building on momentum that was already there in the capital markets. I, I mean, I can remember back in, in January when everyone was debating, you know, what kind of a green stimulus are we going to see? You know, at that point, the, the clean tech sector had, had quintupled in the space of a year. Like the stimulus was already there. It just wasn't organized in a way that we're used to seeing. And, you know, it's, it, some of the momentum has come off a bit, but with uh, Tesla trading north of a trillion dollars on selling just half a million cars, you've got to think those animal spirits are still fairly alive and well in clean tech. And I think that gets to the importance of what can be achieved ahead of the midterms. You know, when the Biden administration sets these targets in terms of net zero emissions or, or this number of, you know, EVs by 2030 and that sort of thing, in a way, the target doesn't matter, right? What the capital markets want is telegraphed ambition and a sense that policy will be broadly stable in the meantime. And no one's really going to care whether it's a third of the market is EVs in 2030 or two thirds. It's, it's whether you get that unstoppable momentum, which in a way, and I'm probably really getting out on the speculative end of things here, in a way sort of solves your political problem as well over the long term. Because, you know, one of the other interesting trends we've seen in 2021 is these unexpected points of friction between corporate America and the Republican Party on various topics, topics that are particularly of interest to younger generations of voters who are expanding as a proportion of the electorate. 
you know, if at some point it simply becomes bad business to say, I'm going to stake my future on coal, or I have to defend fossil fuel interests, or whatever it might turn out to be, at some point that solves the problem for you. So I, I really do think, um, you know, my, my sort of hopeful interpretation of 2021 and what can be achieved ahead of the midterms is that there is still this window to really lay the groundwork for capital markets to just continue what they're doing and, and do the work for you. Thank you for that. Sarah, your thoughts on this question in particular, I think, you know, one of the things that's especially different about the Build Back Better Act, but also the infrastructure package, even, you know, these are multi-year commitments, right? So especially the Build Back Better Act, right? So speaking about that sort of longer term horizon in terms of money that you're spending that are independent of that political cycle, you know, just curious your thoughts about you know, if you do get that 600 billion that you're talking about, does it kind of put you in a world where, yeah, things may come to a screeching halt, but you've just made such a big time payment that, that there's a certain momentum that is unavoidable? Yeah, I think that's really well said, Nikos. I mean, it's a lot of money. It is far from game over after Build Back Better is passed. I think in particular, there is a huge amount of work that the Biden administration will have to do to actually be able to spend the Build Back Better money well. It's just a, a lot of work that they would have to do after that got passed. But I think you're right. What it does is it sort of sets up you know, a multi-year horizon for being able to say, here's your, here's your investment signal coming from the government. And, and to be candid, like that's the best we're going to get, right? That's the best we're going to get out of Congress for a while on this issue, we we tried a clean power you know plan or a, a clean energy performance standard, didn't get that right. So like this is going to be what we get. We're speaking in tax incentives and you know infrastructure investments. That you know these are the things that we're going to be able to do. I'll take it. I think that's fine because if you look at where the market is, it's just like what Liam said. There's so much capital that just wants to find. A, you know, an exit. They want to. They want to figure out how to get these technologies out into the field. What they need is something that you know drives the market and allows them to be able to you know to sell those technologies and to deploy those technologies. So I think that it's a definitely a make hay while the sunshine type of moment. I'm going to say that even though I've never made hay, but like it is definitely one of those periods of time where what you could achieve right now sets the table for the next several years, regardless of you know, what happens in the midterms. I do think it's really important, though, that at the end of two or three years, as I said before, that this idea that these investments were genuinely good for communities across the country is where we need to focus. And there are lots of risks to that happening, right? Part of it has to do with a lot of what needs to happen to decarbonize the United States isn't just about building power generation technology, you know, anymore. It's about doing things like transmission lines and deep integration of clean energy technologies into the energy system. It's about decarbonizing uh, industrial facilities. All of this is trickier, right? It brings with it some potential benefits, but it's also, you know, harder work to do than, you know, simply, you know, deploying power generation so I think that there's a lot of potential risk there over the next couple of years for things to go badly. But I do think if we come out of this political window where it's not a question anymore as to whether or not like these technologies and these investments are good for the economy, and it's an apolitical kind of issue, 
that is what we can hope for in terms of success, right? It just becomes like, you know, broadband is good for the United States, 5G, 6G, good for the United States, clean energy, good for the United States, welcome in my community, those types of things. And I think that's the recipe for trying to depoliticize things in the US where I think some of the political wins, like we, you know, one of the things I find very interesting is in climate world, we tend to not think about the broader sort of geopolitical or political trends in the United States as as squarely as, as you do it, you know, sort of like in C, at CSIS. And we're in a terrible place, right? I mean, we are still in a very divisive place in the US. And I think that it's really important to make sure that you know, clean energy, particularly at the local level, gets kind of divorced from those politics. And in that way, I could see you know, a post-midterm environment where Republicans and a lot of folks go, well, wait a minute, like this is actually beneficial in my community. You know, we saw this happen with you know, solar and wind tax credits over the last several decades or so. That could happen, you know, for the rest of you know clean energy investments. If you go to Texas now, right? We think about you know Texas being the home of oil and gas and refining industry. You know, they just had the World Petroleum Congress, and they want to be the future of energy. And there was a lot of talk about that being about CCUS and hydrogen. And and so I I think that there's a pathway to being able to get to a place where you know over the next decade you could see additional climate legislation, regardless of what political party. Um, is in place, but it really does get anchored around the idea that these investments that are being put in place right now do show those benefits. Well, that is about an optimistic and upbeat take as you're going to get in December of 2021 on energy and climate. And so I think that's our cue to thank our two speakers for being with us. And we hope to have you again in the future to see how things unfolded in the next year. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Thanks to Nico, Sarah, and Liam for that very smart and very timely discussion. You can find more episodes of Energy 360 wherever you listen to podcasts or at CSIS.org. As always, follow us on Twitter at CSIS Energy, and thanks for listening. <laughs>